Good morning. Doing all right? It's good to see you. Why is reading the Bible, not, ju- not just reading the Bible, but studying the scriptures? I just want to, I want you to kind of call back and answer this question. Why is not only reading, but studying the Bible a crucial rhythm within the Christian life? Why is studying the Bible a, cru- a crucial rhythm within the Christian life? Couldn't hear that. Food for the soul. Okay. Okay. The scriptures are how God has revealed himself. What else? Okay. The the scriptures teach us who we are, how we fit into his world. Yeah. The scriptures teach us who God is. Anything else? Pretty well covers it. We study. Thank you. We study those we love. We study those we love. The purpose of studying the Bible is to know God and to worship Him. The purpose of studying the Scriptures is to know God and to worship Him and then to understand how this God intersects with my own life. To know who I am, to know what He means to me, how He would call me to live. To study, just by definition, to study something means that we devote time and we we devote our attention uh, to acquiring knowledge on whatever subject it is that we're studying. That's what it means, essentially, to study something. When a boy meets a girl, though his grades may stink, he becomes a student, does he not? He asks her questions. He wants to know about her likes, and he wants to know about her dislikes. He wants to know about her family. He wants to know about her interests, her history. He might ask hypothetical questions like, if you had a million bucks, what would you spend it on? Or if you could travel anywhere in the entire world, where would you go? Or if you could spend time with anyone at this given moment, who would it be? He wants to know her. He becomes a student of her. We spend an amazing amount of time researching and studying and practicing the things that we set our hearts on, don't we? It's amazing when your heart is set on something, when your heart is in pursuit of something, the way that you are able to research and study and allocate your time toward that end. I wore my knees out playing basketball on the blacktop. I loved the game of basketball, and I'm not able to play it like I was, but I devoted my life for a period of 10 or 15 years to playing basketball. It's telling that if we don't study the scriptures, the reason is probably that our heart is not, on, is not set on knowing and loving God. That hurts a bit as it comes home to us. Perhaps we neglect the scriptures because we find God dull. We find him detached from the issues of our 21st century lives. Or maybe the Bible just is simply, it's intimidating to you. I get that. And so you're hesitant to dive in because you don't know how this ancient book written 3,500 years ago, some portions of it, and the earliest portion of it written 2,000 years ago. You don't know how to approach it. You don't know quite how it all fits together. Or maybe your circumstances are cozy. Right? And there are other interests in your own life that's just crowding out your affections for God and for his scriptures. Ezra is an Old Testament uh, example of someone who set his heart on God's word. His entire public ministry, he's kind of a, a discreet 
fairly obscure figure in the Old Testament. There's a book written after him, and then he showed after his name, Ezra, and then a book right after that called Nehemiah uh, that, that tell a bit about his story and let us into uh, this man's life. His entire public ministry is the byproduct of his private behind-the-scenes devotion. He was a priest in Israel, and his family heritage goes all the way back. He's a descendant of Aaron, the very first priest, as God instituted the the law, the sacrificial system. Aaron was the brother of Moses. So, in many ways, Ezra is a distant nephew of Moses himself. He was a priest in Israel. And not only that, but the book that bears his name, Ezra, it tells us that Ezra was also a scribe who, quote, was skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, he is the one who gave the law to Moses. He was skilled in this law of Moses. So scribes were trained teachers of the law in Israel. It would prob- their training and the scope of their training would probably be akin to an attorney in our day. They, under, they underwent a massive amount of schooling and memorization and drilling and history in their lives to become a scribe, a trained teacher of the law. And during this time of, of Ezra's life, it was about 485 or 460 BC, so somewhere in the, in the area of 500 years before Jesus was born, uh, Ezra was alive, and the, the people of Israel had been exiled. The, the Babylonians had come in and sacked uh, Jerusalem, sacked the nation of Israel, carried the majority of the people off to their territory, and made them their slaves. And then about 70 years after that, the Persians came in and took over and sacked Babylon. And the Israelites just became inherited. They were just inherited by the Persians. And so Ezra was one of these leaders of the Israelite people who were under the, who were oppressed in many ways by the Persians. But this nation of Israel within the nation of Persia, they needed leaders. And the Persians were wise and smart in how they dealt. They, they didn't just put their thumbs on the people who were uh, who they had imprisoned or enslaved, but they would find trusted leaders from among these people that could act as liaisons between Persia and Israel. And then, and then they would use these leaders to direct these nations within so that there wouldn't be uprisings and so that there wouldn't be a war and terror from within. Well, Ezra was a trusted leader of the Persian king, a man named Artaxerxes. He had Artaxerxes' trust. So he had the trust of his people, Israel, but he also had the trust of this oppressing nation, Persia. There's this obscure verse. All that to say, I just want to give you a little bit of background. There's this obscure verse in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, that says this. This is the beginning portion of Ezra's memoir in this book. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. We can learn as students of God's word, we can learn so much from this obscure verse like this in the Old Testament. And the subject of our study this morning is the subject of study. Why is the study of God's word an important rhythm 
of our daily life, of our life with God. So there's four main points and principles that I just want to draw out of this, and then we'll, we'll move on. But I want you to see in this text that Ezra, the very first thing that it tells us he did was he made a decision. Literally, he set his heart to do something. He made an intentional choice to learn God's law. Ezra weighed the cost. He weighed the reward, and he opted in very first thing he did was decide like a boy who meets a girl and sets his heart on her but what he set his heart on it wasn't vague it was God himself and he got specific about his decision he didn't only make a decision but he got very specific about his decision and his decision was to study the law of the Lord he selected an object of study studying the law of Moses as a scribe like Ezra, this included more than just a decision to gain understanding of the law. But his choice to study the law of the Lord and, and to opt into the school of the scribes, it would mean that Ezra would, uh, would, would then live a life of vigorous, disciplined study, and not just study, but memorization of the first five books of your Old Testament, Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's about 225 pages in my Bible uh, of, of no light reading, of law and of history and of poetry and song. Uh, they would be required to memorize it, to have it locked into their mind and not only their mind, but their heart. They would understand not just what the law was, but why the law existed in the first place. How the law of God was meant to be a benefit to the people. The law in the Old Testament, the law is its a mix of mirror, guardrails, and also promises of blessing. Mirror, what do I mean by that? I mean that the law shows us our fallenness in sight of a holy God. But not only that, it provides guardrails for us so that we don't go off the, off the cliff essentially with our own lives. And not only that, but it also provides motivation. The law of God provides motivation and promises of blessing to God's people. So he set his heart to study the law of the Lord. And not just that, but he also practiced what he learned. That text says that he he, he decided to do it, to do the law. So Ezra's, his acquisition of knowledge became life practice. His acquisition of the knowledge of the law of God, it actually became life practice for him. His new knowledge opened up a new way of life as he set his mind and his heart on the story of God and his redemptive action in real history. And so what Ezra learned was linked. It was not detached from how Ezra sought to live. What he learned about God, it led him to love God and it led him to obey God as well. So he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, but not just to do it. Ezra also decided to share the fruit of his learning teach God's statutes and his rules in Israel. He determined, and within his own heart as a man, as a priest and a scribe, he determined that he wanted to spread understanding and obedience to the law to a specific audience for their benefit, which would be their worship. He wanted to do this to see the people of God, the captive people of God, under the reign of Persia, know God, because they were beginning to assimilate as a people 
to the culture around them, intermarrying, taking on their customs, their worship practices, and Israel needed a man like Ezra to lead them back to God and to learn what repentance and faith is. So like this Old Testament character Ezra, God's people venture to know the Lord through our study, and we don't only stop at the acquisition of knowledge. An apprentice who only knows but doesn't also do is hardly a successful apprentice. If you're just in the school of knowledge, but you're not actually doing something with your hands, that is not the definition of a successful apprentice. The fruit of our Bible study, it isn't knowledge only, but the end goal is worship for us. The end goal of our desire and decision to study the scriptures is worship. And this worship will bring about our own satisfaction because we were created for a worship-based relationship with God. And so let's be wary as we come to the scriptures to study them of our newfound Bible knowledge just sitting in our heads and rotting them out like the New Testament says about folks who were always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. As we set our hearts on the study of God's word to know him, to love him, the fruit of our worship, it leads to more fruit. Soon it will grow into wisdom. Soon it will grow into favor for us as well. The psalmist in Psalm 119, he writes this. He says, the unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So you're, 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 you're initially going, wait, wait, wait. I, I don't have the tools. I don't have the capacity to be able to study God's word and understand this ancient document. And what this psalm is teaching us, and it teaches us in other ways repeatedly throughout the Bible as well, is that the scriptures, the revelation of God, it makes wise, simple people. So God's word is clear in that we, as his people, can understand it as we come. And he gives light through his spirit to help us continue to understand the scriptures. So when we start to raise our hand and say, well, I'm just not a student. I'm just not a reader. I'm just not much of a learner. Stop right there and, and, and understand that the scriptures encourage you. God who wrote them says, if you will give yourself to this, I will bring about wisdom in your life. I will give you wisdom, and not just wisdom, but also favor. Turn with me. Uh, the, there are black Bibles around the room, or if you brought yours, and I hope you did, turn with me to page 806 in those black Bibles, or Luke chapter 2, verses 20 through, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2, verses 40 through 52. Page 806 in the black Bible, starting in verse 40. I'm going to read here. This is speaking of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. And the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then Luke tells us the story in 241 about this boy, Jesus, in the temple. Now his parents, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. This is a major uh, celebratory feast in Israel, the Day of Atonement. All the people of God descend on Jerusalem at this time, and there are about a million people, at some estimates say, inside the city walls and around the city at this time. It is absolutely packed with people and animals. Verse 42, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to this custom. And when the feast was ended, so the party is over, as they're returning, the boy Jesus stays, stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents didn't know it. 
But supposing him to be in the traveling group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Now, we might not do something like this with our 12-year-old because we we travel in, in cars and family units and nuclear family units, but these folks were traveling by animal and animal and by foot from their towns uh, to Jerusalem and they're traveling with acquaintances they're traveling with family and a 12 year old boy in ancient Israel is probably is potentially uh, more of a streetwise individual than a 12 year old boy in our day and age so it wouldn't be uncommon for a massive throng of people to just be walking along and to be trusting that he as 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 is the custom. He knows the way, but he's probably just with his cousins and they're rallying or his friends and they're around. We'll find him at some point. But they begin to search and they didn't find him. Verse 45, they returned back to Jerusalem searching for him after three days, mom. Imagine your heart, dad, in this moment. Three days, you're in a city, there are all kinds of people living, leaving the city and you're looking for your boy and, and imagine some of the despair and the fear that starts to come up in you after three days. They find Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem, this major complex, sitting. What was he doing? He was sitting among the teachers. He was listening to them and asking them questions. So this 12-year-old boy is posturing himself as a learner. He's learning from the teachers of Israel. He's learning the law of God. He's learning the way of God. He's asking questions. And the text says uh, that they were amazed at his understanding and the way that he answered back to them. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mom says to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Why have you done this? Can you, what have you done to me in this moment? She is just mad. And I could imagine it. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, like, like he does, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house or about my father's business? And they didn't understand this saying that he spoke to them, which was a quote from, uh, from earlier in the scriptures from the Old Testament. And he went down with them. He came to Nazareth, which is where he was from, and he was submissive to them. And his mother, because... She birthed him. Uh, she was not with a man. The Holy Spirit uh, conceived Jesus in her womb. She was visited by the angel early. She treasured these things. She knew there was something about this boy. She treasured these things in her heart. Look at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature or age or years and in favor with God and with man. The fruit of of studying the scriptures is growth in favor with God and men. Church, let's be militant. I chose that word on purpose. Let's be militant about not equating our Bible reading and our Bible study as a way to earn God's acceptance. Let's be militant and resistant to that. The amount of your and I's Bible study, it no more justifies us in the sight of, in the sight of God than paying taxes makes me a citizen of Idaho. I don't pay taxes so that I can become a citizen. I pay taxes because I am a citizen of this state. And we study God's word because it teaches us about the one who has created us and about the one who loves us. Not so that we will not, we don't study it so that he'll keep us alive or he'll bless us or he'll give us favor, but it teaches us to love him first. 
And yet I don't want to I don't want to miss what this passage does describe. Jesus, he's the author and perfecter of our faith. He hungers after the Father's word. He makes space for the Father's word. Why? Because Jesus enjoys the Father. He wants to be in his presence. You know that person in your life that when you've got something on the schedule with them, you just get fired up to hang out with them. And you start looking forward to it a few days in in advance. They give you life. Their relationship for you, being in their presence, it's life-giving for you. As Jesus, this is how he related to the Father. He was consistently uh, just making ways to be in the Father's presence over the course of his life and ministry. And we read that in the Gospels. And so as Jesus stewarded his relationship with the Father in this way, one of the benefits and one of the blessings that came to Jesus was the Father bestowed blessing and favor upon him. They're just pleased with one another in relationship. And I can't help but believe that when we cherish the Father, when we cherish our God, and when we cherish the good news of what Jesus has done for us, that he also creates and opens up opportunity for us to glorify him and to invite other people into a similar joy, which was why disciples in the early church and the, in the book of Acts, uh, which is why they would uh, they were often described as having favor with all of the people. Yes, they would have enemies, but disciples also had much favor. No matter who you are, if you give yourself to the study of God's word as a means of loving him, he will bless you in many unpredictable ways. I say unpredictable because this isn't some kind of transactional relationship where we say, okay, if I give you 15 minutes in the word, then you give me A, B, or C. I don't know. He is the sovereign who gives as he pleases. He gives gifts as he pleases. But as we place ourselves in the presence of God with the word of God before us, opening our hearts and our ears and our lives up to him, he will bless us in many unpredictable ways. And we will grow in wisdom and we will grow in stature and opportunity to share. So when you think uh, in your own life, what are some of the ways and environments that I want to give myself to study? Or when you think about the ways that you can give yourself to the study of God's word, consider doing it privately, right? We have the scriptures. We have the word of God before us. But do not neglect community. Be very, very, very intentional if you're able, and you should be able in some context, to, to study the scriptures in a group of people. Because uh, this, is so, this is so valuable. In community, what we have is this, this self-correcting guardrails of a loving community, a loving group of people around us. And so in that loving group of people who also know the scriptures, we can ask our honest questions. We can explore. We can look for answers from God and from the text itself, and also through the wisdom and the experience and the knowledge of our friends. And so we're not just relying on our own life experiences, and we're not just relying on our own unaided human wisdom. The earliest description of life together in the church is in Acts 2, 42 through 47. And it begins by saying that these disciples, uh, they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers and to the breaking of bread and to the fellowship. They met in homes together. They gave away their possessions. They had favor with all of the people and God added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice that it starts by saying they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching which is what we have in our New Testament. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to praying together. And as they lived, this uh, Luke makes this statement, the writer of Acts, and he says, and they had favor with all of the people. And God, day by day, added to their number those who were being saved. So this is a, a wonderful example here. Now, we ask the question, like, okay, uh, I understand that there is some importance, that there is an object of my study, there's a purpose to my study as well, but how do I do it? How do I actually study the scriptures? Donald Whitney, uh, he makes it so clear. He says, the basic difference between Bible reading and Bible study is a pen and paper. It's practical, just getting practical on the ground right, right now with you. Last week, you know, I encourage you to read widely to just read broad swaths as a rhythm of your life. Just take in the scriptures. Listen to the scriptures. Let it wash over you. But you want to go a little bit deeper. And when you want to, to get in to begin ingesting the meat of God's word, do so with a notebook and with a pen. And just begin to journal your thoughts. During Galatians, we gave you some scripture journals that had, uh, you can get these ESV um, scripture journals that will just take one book of the Bible, the text is on the left-hand page, and then there are just blank line pages on the right. And you can just mark that text up like you want and write notes and observations about that text. It's a really good way to study the scriptures just with a pen and paper in hand. Now, you can also study in depth with a few simple movements, and I just want to give you a few movements of how we can study the scriptures. This is a solid Bible study method. I want to just put tools in your belt this morning. So if you're taking notes or want to take screenshots with your phone, uh, do it so that you can refer back to it. This is a very simple method to begin to open up and to understand the scriptures that you're reading through three movements. Observe, interpret, and apply. Observe, interpret, and apply. Say it. You have it. Observe, interpret, and apply the scriptures. When we observe the scriptures, we're just taking a look around. That's what we're doing. We're just having a look around. We're asking questions. Who is the author of this text? Who is the? Who are they writing to? Um, what is the genre of this text? What's the literary style of this text? What kinds of things stand out to you and just make you scratch your head? Who are the various characters in this text? taking a look around here. You're having, uh, uh, you're, you're taking note of what you are seeing. Now, this is something to think through when you read the Bible. Take the Bible, read the Bible literarily, not literally. Do not read the scriptures literally. Take the scriptures literarily. What do I mean by that? You need to, and we need to, when we come to the scriptures, we need to understand their genre, their literary style. This will help you understand what you're reading. Because in the scriptures, we have a mix of history. We have a mix of narrative. We have a mix of law. We have a mix of poetry and song, prophecy. There are all kinds of different contexts and literary styles within the scriptures. For instance, this morning I was reading through and praying through Psalm 61. And Psalm 61 described God as a strong tower. And then it goes on to say, shelter me underneath your wings as a refuge. Now, is God a strong tower metaphorically? Yes. Is he literally a strong tower? No, he's not. We need to read the scriptures literarily not necessarily literally. 
I, I'm, what I'm not saying, in case you're putting that on me in the moment, is to not believe the hard things in scriptures that you find yourself reading. A second movement after observation, and this can occur in like five, ten minutes. This can occur in small bursts of time. You can, you can learn this uh, pretty quickly and just do some rudimentary study and go deeper with longer lengths of time if you choose. But the next movement is to interpret. And what you're doing in interpretation is you're asking about meaning. You're asking what this passage is saying about God. What is it saying about humans? What's it telling us to do, which moves more into application? But What's important for us to do is to ask what God is saying to his original audience this time. What is God saying? That should be a first question that we begin asking as we move into interpretation is what is what are the scriptures saying to the original authors? What is the author saying, or uh, uh, recipients, hearers rather, audience? What is the author saying to the original audience? Now, this is also important when we get into interpretation. And there's far more about Bible. I can't, I can't do it all in a 40-minute message on a Sunday morning. But we need to understand and know this. There is only one intended meaning of any given text in the Scriptures. There are myriad applications. There is only one intended meaning of any given text in the Bible. So we need to have a good hermeneutic or principle by which we understand and read the scriptures. What did the original author intend for his audience to know? We need to remember as well, this Bible that we're reading, it's an ancient document. It's rooted in history. It's rooted in real history, real culture, real language, written uh, some portions of it 3,500 years ago, the most recent portions 2,000 years ago. And so there are some things for 21st century hearers that are going to be hard to understand. And we need to start getting into context and at least asking some of those questions and, and trying to just dig in a little bit. And so even if we come to a text of Scripture and we differ on what that text of that passage means, it doesn't mean that there are two meanings. It means that one of us is wrong. There is only one intended meaning of any passage of Scripture. And this additionally, I'm just throwing things out here. I just want you to put these in your tool belt. Don't ask in Bible study what a passage of Scripture means to you. Stop. Stop doing that, please. It's an unhealthy way to, to study the scriptures. Don't ask, what does this mean to me? Ask, what is God saying to me? That's not semantics. Ask, what is God saying to me directly in this text? And then we move to application. Uh, the application portion, it begins with asking, uh, it begins with answering the question, what do I do or what do I believe in light of what God is speaking in this passage or this verse? So, for instance, to go back to, uh, to Ezra 7.10, you may uh, conclude from, uh, from Ezra 7.10 that God is asking you to set, on, set your own heart on studying and doing his word. And so you develop, out of that, you develop a devotional plan for your time, for your weekdays. That's what you do. That's just, you, you, you move into that application. You have a sense that that is what the Spirit of God is telling you to do. Or, or perhaps uh, you aren't quite there yet as you recognize that you have set your heart on many other things that have crowded out God. 
And maybe through your study or through recent reading, you've just recently read Ephesians 1, which says that God set his saving love on you before the foundation of the world. And so at that moment, as you recognize these two things, that you've crowded out your, the, your, your day-to-day, just the things that you're affectionate about have crowded out your love of God and the word, but you also recognize what Ephesians 1 says, that he set his saving love on you from from before the foundation of the world, you're filled with this simultaneous uh, grief and rejoicing over the fact that Jesus Christ would first give his heart to you in order to reset and replace your disordered loves onto him. Maybe that's just what washes over your heart in that moment. And so your application then becomes to search your own heart and to wonder at the goodness of God in the gospel. And that happens before the thought ever occurs to you to do something with your weekdays. You just find your heart and your mind just start to be elevated and and get up into the space of worship. Sometimes our application, it's very specific. It speaks to our direct situations. It speaks to our direct uh, circumstances that we find ourselves in. There's this immediate imperative. It's imperative that, like Jesus said in Matthew 6, you must pray when you pray. I know, like, there's something specific for me to do with that. And therefore, we begin to set out praying daily. But sometimes also our application is transformative. It hits at our hearts and our minds. It hits at our internal center. And it begins to change the way that we think about life and the way that we think about things. I remember reading Romans 5.8, and I've never forgotten this. Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This passage, it's indicative of what Jesus Christ has done, but it doesn't necessarily tell me what to do with it. It's just giving me knowledge and truth there. But I certainly ended up doing something with it. It lodged in my mind, and it sunk and trickled down into my own heart, and I recognized that I was not accepted by God based on my performance. At my worst, he loved me with his best by choosing to give his perfect life as a ransom for my detestable life. And I hadn't even done anything. I wasn't cleaned up. My life didn't look any different. And for those of you who know my story, it was a detestable life. And so this passage, Romans 5.8, it caused me to worship God by first transforming how I saw him. It just hit at my heart. It hit at my mind. Now, I want to give you briefly just a quick little Bible study toolbox. If you just want to, if you just want to assemble a bit of a Bible study, Bible study toolbox for yourself, uh, number one, what you need is a Bible. Uh, that is just, a. Th- if, if you don't own one, there are black Bibles around the room. We want you to take that. It's yours. It's our gift to you. No strings attached. Please take that and, and have it. We want you to have the scriptures. But we also, I think it's very important to have a community community of God's people who come together in a, in a large context like this, where the word of God is sung, it's prayed, it's proclaimed, it's heard, it's recited together. This is a place where we get exposed and where, where the scriptures are opened up to us, but also don't neglect a small community. Maybe it is a community group. Maybe it's a one-to-one opportunity where you're just hanging out with somebody and the scriptures are open and you're studying, going back and forth, trying to understand in depth how uh, what is happening there, how you interpret it, and then also how you apply it to your life. Or maybe you've got a group of guys or a group of gals that you gather with or you desire to. Those are uh, very, very, very crucial ways, I believe, to study the scriptures. And then 
um, grab a grab a study Bible as well. This is an ESV study Bible, really good uh, CSB or Christian Standard study Bible, NIV study Bibles. Good, get a good translation and then a study Bible, and you're like, whoa, that thing is thick. Do I have to read all of that? No, you don't have to read all of this, but what this script, what, what study Bibles have is the text of the Bible here and then the explanation of nearly every verse in the entire Bible underneath, and that just unlocks learning for you. Additionally, they have all kinds of, of articles and, and different helps in these study Bibles to just help you piece together the story of God from Genesis to Revelation. It is an essential tool of Bible study. I use this thing constantly as I am preparing messages for you guys. I'm consistently referring to this study Bible. There are great helps online as well. Uh, Bible.org is a really good uh, website and resource for you to go and just be able to research for depth of study, but also for uh, some more surface study. A website that I use all the time is thegospelcoalition.org. The Gospel Coalition has some different training modules, and it's all free uh, for the taking. And then another website that is phenomenal, I know I'm going fast, but you can listen to the podcast. Another, uh, an, another resource is the Bible Project it's based out of Portland. These guys get together and they, in summary, they, they sum up every single book of the Bible visually with these drawings and they just unpack and help us understand in five to ten minutes what the point of every single book of the Bible is and how its major theme is found and realized in Jesus Christ. It's phenomenal and it's entertaining. It's just not boring. It's wonderful. Last, listen to Christ-centered preaching. Listen to Christ-centered preaching. Got a smartphone, you've got the ability to podcast, you've got a, a, a computer at home, listen to Christ-centered preaching. I've got just my top five preachers. Um, yours may be totally different. These are my go-to guys. Number one is Ray Ortland Jr. of Emanuel Church in Nashville. Take a screenshot uh, if you need to of the screen as well. Timothy Keller, he pastors Redeemer Church, or did. He's retired. Ray Ortland is retired now, but you can still find all their content in the podcast apps. Timothy Keller pastored Redeemer Church in, Man in Manhattan. Tony Morita is a uh, mentor of mine in preaching. He pastors a church called Mago Day in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, R.C. Sproul, he is no longer alive, but has a repository of his teachings from back in the 70s all the way through. He's one of the most prolific Bible teachers ever. Uh, and then John Piper is good as well. Now, remember this. Uh, remember this. Our aim in Bible study is worship. Our aim in studying the scriptures and making that a rhythm of our life is worship. And the Christ of the Bible is the center of your Bible. The Christ of the Bible is the center of your Bible. He said it himself in John 5. Jesus said it himself again in Luke 24 that all of the prophets, the law, the writings, they all point to him. He rebuked the Pharisees for looking to their Bibles because they thought they would find life in their Bibles. But he says, you refuse to come to me. And it's the scriptures that speak of me. The Christ of the Bible is the center of your Bible. Ezra, he's a faithful high priest who called the exiles under the oppression of Persia to repent and return to God. But Jesus Christ, he's the ultimate priest who both calls and has made a way for everyone, not just Israelites, but everyone to repent and to return to God. And he hasn't just called 
people to bring their sacrifice to the temple, but Jesus Christ has become the once for all sacrifice and is himself the temple, is himself the one who mediates the presence of God to us. Ezra was a faithful scribe and teacher, and he showed the Israelites the way back to God. And Jesus is the ultimate teacher, and he is the way to the Father. He not only shows the way, but he is the way. He said in John, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And he said again in John 14, no one comes to me except, uh, uh, rather, he says, no one comes to the Father except by me. He is the way, the truth, and the life. I want to finish with this quote this morning. It's from a man named Jeffrey Thomas. He's a Welsh pastor. Uh, It'll be up on the screen. Let your heart sink in and just settle in here as we conclude. He says this. It's so comforting. Do not expect to master the Bible in a day or a month or a year. Rather, expect often to be puzzled by its contents. It's not all equally clear. Great men of God often feel like absolute novices when they read the word. The Apostle Peter said there were some things hard to understand in the letters of Paul. I'm glad he wrote those words because I've felt that often. And I have as well. So do not expect always to get an emotional charge or a feeling of quiet peace when you read the Bible. Did you hear that? Don't always expect to get an emotional charge or a feeling of quiet peace when you read the Bible. By the grace of God, you may expect that to be a frequent experience, but often you will get no emotional response at all. Let the word break over your heart and mind again and again as the years go by, and imperceptibly there will come great changes in your attitude and outlook and conduct. You will probably be the last to recognize these. Is that encouraging? Often, you will feel very, very small because increasingly the God of the Bible will become to you wonderfully great. So go on reading it until you can read no longer and then you will not need the Bible anymore because when your eyes close for the last time in death and never again read the Word of God in Scripture, you will open your eyes to the Word of God in the flesh, that same Jesus of the Bible whom you have known for so long, standing before you to take you forever to His eternal home purpose of studying the scriptures is our worship that is realized in Jesus Christ. Amen. Pray with me if you would. Father, help this to sink in for us. Create students of your word who don't just have big Bible heads and cold, ugly hearts, but who are people of warmth and a people who, who embed and take in and are nourished by the scriptures. May they form our way of life and may the scriptures keep us from arrogance as we are people who are known for our love for one another because of the love that you have poured into your heart through Jesus Christ and through the spirit who lives within us. Draw us to yourself and comfort us. In Jesus' name, amen.